Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Engendered, the show that features stories that explore the systems, practices, and policies that enable gender-based violence and oppression and the solutions to end it. Engendered is sponsored by Can Do It, spelled K-A-N-D-U-I-T, and I'm your host, Terry Yuan. On today's show, we are debuting a new bonus format we're calling Engendered Reflections, where I will be reflecting upon recently released episodes with a guest. My friend Michael is here with us today to join in that conversation. Currently, Michael leads a workforce development program at a New York City community-based organization. He trains youth and young adults in building job skills and assists them with finding and retaining long-term employment. Michael and I used to work together serving vulnerable and economically disadvantaged populations in New York City, and we share that common lens of understanding of how gender and intimate partner violence serve as barriers to achieving education and or professional success. Welcome, Michael. Hi, Terry. How are you? Good. So I'm so glad to have you join our show. Thank you. Thank you. This is a new experience for me. It's my first time that I am in a podcast. As I said in the introduction, this is my friend, Michael. He works in workforce development and helps youth and adults get jobs and helps them develop the skills that they need to keep their jobs and to have social mobility. Does that sound right, Michael? That sounds right. I work with a huge age range from 16 all the way to 65 and way above. I see a lot of different people coming from all walks of life. And it's one of the things that I'm passionate about. So I'm, I'm hoping I'm making a difference in the community. So we're having Michael join our show as a cisgendered heterosexual male who can share his perspective on some of the podcast episodes that I've released already. And so let's jump right in. Let's talk about the first interview, Evan Stark on coercive control. I'm curious, like, I'm sure it was, it's been a while since you have heard it already, but right, what, it's been, what were your uh, thoughts? So when I heard about Evan, I, I wasn't sure what to expect because, see, I'm, I'm relatively new to this. I'm learning a lot through this podcast. Every With every new podcast that I listen to, I learn something different. It's something, me, as in my personal growth, it does help. So there's a lot of things that I have heard for the first time here and through Evan He talked about the difference between domestic violence as a term that society misunderstands for the most part and the concept of coercive control that he's written about in his book and he's advanced in law, mainly in Europe, and how it's a gendered crime and, and the concept of coercive control as a liberty crime, as a human rights violation when you're in a relationship where someone exercises that over you and and uses his privilege to undermine your freedoms in the relationship. Right. So growing up, there's so much that I didn't realize that I had these conceptions or these, these thoughts of how society would work. Did you recognize any of the descriptions of the behaviors in the relationships that you've had um, with the men in your life, with the men in your life towards the women in their lives? Um, Did you recognize any of those behaviors in yourself? Because as he said, anybody can engage in coercive control, but 
the definition that he was using was around how men use it in heterosexual relationships towards women. So right. I'm curious. Oh, absolutely. So I don't want to mention any names, and I, but yes, people very close to me have definitely experience these things. And I even see it now in a lot of people that I do interact with. And of course, I've seen it in myself, in my past relationships. I've, I've, I've done things that when I look back now, I think, wow, I really shouldn't have said that, or I really shouldn't have. Or sometimes you're in a position of power and you really don't know the effect that you have over someone or, or the power you have, you have over someone. So a lot of times when people say yes, it may not necessarily be a yes with, when, especially when we're talking about a woman in a, in a relationship where that yes may not necessarily be a yes. You have to be vigilant and, and really focus on, or pay attention. We, we, I think one of the greatest things about your podcast is that you are really letting people know about how, about all these behaviors that we take for granted and we don't really pay attention to. I think it's it's really important. So, you know, you're touching upon one of my goals, which is to really expose the systems that we all live under that, you know, impact all aspects of our lives. So the legal systems, the in law enforcement, policy, obviously our cultural systems, which include the media and news, you know, popular culture, all of these systems, education, play a part in indoctrinating us into our roles. With respect to Evan, it it was heterosexual romantic relationships, you know, in that capacity, how is coercive control exercised? And so I'm happy to hear that that it's, I guess, opened your eyes in some way? Absolutely. It definitely has opened my eyes. And in some situations, I, even in in my current relationships that I have with people that are very close to me, there's someone that, okay, so there's somebody that I know, there's things that he doesn't know. The, 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 The fact that we are brought up in a society that is so patriarchal, that we just have this, this, this sense of entitlement that we don't realize we continue to enforce. So you're referencing a male friend who, I guess... Family member. Okay, who is engaging in behaviors towards a female. Yes. And so I guess my question would be, if this information was eye-opening for you, how do you think it can be useful for our listeners to transmit that information and share it in a way to other people in their lives safely and without, you know, having them feel attacked or criticized. Because again, I go back to the systems part, right? right? So we all fall under these systems and we're not trying to blame people individually, although people's actions, you know, they have responsibility and accountability over the individual actions and choices. But there's some level of indoctrination, that part is present. And if someone can recognize that larger part by which they are shaped, then maybe they're going to be more open to hearing the things that you have to say. Yeah, I don't think there's an easy solution for that. I don't think from now to one year from now, uh, all of a sudden things are going to get better. I, I think 
it's going to be a very slow process. I think we do have to have that dialogue. We do have to talk to the people who are closest to us first and try to be informed yourself first. Once, you, once you're informed, you have to then recognize these behaviors that you see in everyday life, whether it's a friend or a family member. I think that's, that's where we can start because if we don't start that dialogue, nothing is ever going to change. I mean, I've been guilty of this myself where I would defend my point of view because I feel threatened for some reason, if somebody accuses me, hey, listen, what you did, that was that, that was really offensive or that was or you're, you're trying to control me or you're trying to what you're saying belittles me or puts me down. I think we have to really stop and, 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 and think about it. So what you're saying is the first episode for you, what it gave you is an opportunity to have a framework by which to understand systems and now start a dialogue. Absolutely. Yes. Okay. Yes. That, so that's accurate. You, what you said touched upon is a great segue for us to talk about the episode number three, the second interview I had with Phyllis B. Frank. Yes. So she, if you recall from that episode, talked about how her own transformation was pivotal as a result of her taking an undoing racism workshop. Right. Now that episode I listened to more than once actually. So uh so I that was pretty amazing how she talked about how her racism, she didn't come to terms with her racism at the time where she was being accused. I think during one point she said that and an advocate, I believe, said that the people, the, the, those neo-Nazis and uh, are, aren't really the problem. It's people like you that are not, they, they don't realize how their racism is affecting right. people. Right. And, and the people like you, when she made that quote, was referencing liberal white people who think that they are immune to racism. Absolutely. Which, which by the way, for the listeners of this episode... To be clear, and the definition of racism, it's not about individual prejudice. It's individual prejudice plus institutional power. So the fact that someone is uh, male and white means that they have the ability to exert both male privilege and white privilege and be racist by taking advantage of their white privilege. Absolutely. And therefore they can also take advantage of systemic, you know, misogyny and sexism through their male privilege. And so it's really not about, just to be clear, it's not about individual beliefs, but about, it's not about prejudice. It's about prejudice with, with individual power. And the fact that she was able to come to terms with that for me. And especially, I think when she took the course, it was in, right. I think in the 80s, 70s or 80s, you know, so it was a very, I think, courageous thing for someone to do, to be able to recognize that they don't know it all, even Absolutely. though they're working in this field and a pioneer in the battered women's movement and as an early feminist, you know. And so to me, that actually shows a great deal of openness and, ability to touch other people. Absolutely. Because again, it starts with us. We're all guilty of, uh, well, I, I don't know. I, I would, I'll speak for myself, but I, I have definitely been guilty of, of exerting my, um, my male privilege. But I think that another thing that, that she mentioned during that episode was how even the people that are closest to her, men that she trusted and men that she felt 
that would be very good for her movement and her and her staff were accused of violence against women. So it's so prevalent in our society that we we just take it as something that's normal. And that's that's when it becomes dangerous, when we feel, right, this is normal, this is just what we do. And I think both men and women fall into this, where they feel like, oh, well, this is just my place in society and this, this is just normal. Yeah, and I think also you raise a good point that it's not just that we've become immune to it because it's so prevalent, but the fact that we have so many myths and stereotypes around who commits these crimes. And... I mean, I think if, if we look at the statistics and it's pretty widely accepted now that, you know, domestic violence and curse of control crosses gender boundaries, crosses race and class and sexual orientation. And, you know, and so nobody is immune from it, but we still maintain these stereotypes that, you know, wealthy people, you know, can't be violent or a white man, you know, can't be violent because right. he's a white collar you know, lawyer. Or they don't have a certain look or they just... Exactly. Uh, right. And and yet what you pointed out in your example is that there was someone on her staff who worked with batterers. Right, he did. And he was accused himself of, you know, sexual violence in his own personal life. So, right. so she herself as a trained advocate wasn't able to identify that. So really what that says is, which was a point I think that she, you know, tried to make again and again during the interview, is that we can never know because we're all susceptible to it and we're all kind of always struggling against it, right? So it's, I guess, in many ways, probably similar to people who might be alcoholics who say that, you know, they may be not have drank anything for, you know, however long, right. but they're still always aware that they haven't. Do you think that that sounds like a good right, analogy? Right. I absolutely, I do think that, yeah, that sounds like a good analogy. I would, if I were to ask her, I'm, I'm not sure, you might know this, but the pool of applicants for for the people that she chose, did she choose them themselves? Where, where's this pool of applicants? Or is, do you think that a person who has tendency to do these things is drawn to this type of work? Or I, I'm just, oh, just so that, out of curiosity. That actually is a very, it's a, another something else that you had me think about is there were recent articles and I don't recall if it was like three months ago or six months ago, at the end of 2017, beginning of 2018, there were a slew of articles mm-hmm about how people who worked in the humanitarian aid area had been engaging in coercion and sexual abuse. Now, I'm pretty sure that there's certain fields of work where that's a lot more prevalent. I mean, I'm assuming in the media, for example, we, we, we've we been hearing a lot about actors and people who have that power, famous uh, Louis C.K. and, and uh, Morgan Freeman. They seem to be prone to that. That's expected because it's in a position of power. I wouldn't say that this is is necessarily the most powerful position that you could look for. Well, but. I think the issue isn't how much absolute power one has. Okay. It's how much relative power one has. Got it. So relative in this example, it was UNICEF who admitted that their peacekeepers were sexually abusing some of their child victims. Oh. You know, and we've heard we've heard this, you know, across the board when it comes to other refugee areas and other humanitarian aid, you know, organizations as well, where their workers demand money or sex in exchange for safe transport. 
you know, and so right. this is something right. that I think clearly exists everywhere, but we shouldn't assume that just because someone works in a certain field in an industry that they're quote unquote helpers, right. you know, or professional helpers, that they're not going to also be prone to the challenges of abuses of power. That's really terrifying. I think terrifying more to the people who are seeking these services. I, I mean, if I was seeking services and I, I'm looking for safety and I know there's a danger for people to exert their power over me, especially men, I would be less likely to trust a male over a female. And like, this is what I would think. This just points to the systemic problem, you know, back to that issue right. of that there's power everywhere, but it's how how people use their power. You can use it for good or you could, you know, abuse your power Absolutely. to hurt other people and maintain that power differential. Right. Right. And so. and that it happens all the time in the workplace environment. Right. Well, know? of course. Yeah. yeah. So I, I hope that I hope that I'm vigilant enough to make sure that I uh, that I keep that to my in the forefront of my mind. So what about episode three? We spoke with Ruth M. Glenn, the CEO mm-hmm. and president of the National Coalition Against Domestic Violence, NCADV. Was there anything from that conversation that really struck you that you felt was new and informative? About the media and gun violence. It's depressing to think the political climate we're dealing with now. So many people are against against having some sort of gun control and it's just not happening. I think recently Betsy DeVos was supposed to, I think you, you, you're probably more informed in this than I am, but she was bringing up solutions that had nothing to do with gun enforcement and it's always something else around it. So that's one of the things that I I think is a huge issue, huge problem in our society. And yeah, she has probably a lot to lose if she, financially, if she if she did something against for gun control. So yes, I, I think that's that's just a continuous problem in our society that we, we have to focus on. I mean, I think what we have seen that's different, or it's not significantly different, but I felt that there's been more of a connection in the media on reporting on mass shootings oh. and making well, not necessarily making a strong connection between some sort of misogynistic or domestic violence history of the perpetrator or the shooter, but at least referencing it in some way, even though they may not, you know, sort of draw a causal relationship between some failed systemic effort in actually enforcing safety, you know, for whoever this these alleged shooters, previous victims were, and their now ability to, you know, exercise damage and, you know, pain and suffering um, and death, obviously, on so many people in the public realm. So I think that that is different for me, mm-hmm. but I don't think that the public knows about that. Like, were you aware that that there, you know, there's this connection? There's a couple of things that uh, that I didn't know. One of the things I believe that you that was mentioned, I I believe I hope that it's Ruth about the the reporting of the of the person who was the shooter. Oh, the the, the, Santa, Fe the shooter, Santa Fe shooter, Santa Fe high school shooter. Right. That the original report was that he was the victim. The title read that she that she died after constantly being. Yeah. So what what you're referring to is when Ruth and I talked about, in particular, there was an LA Times article that had a headline that basically said, 
the alleged Santa Fe shooter, the mother referenced the, I forgot exactly what it was, but it, it positioned the shooter as a victim in the headline of the girl that he shot because she had, quote unquote, spurned his advances when they were in school together. So it was as if the shooting was justified because she hurt him emotionally. And and so that was the headline in the LA Times, which by the way, is on our website, if you want to take a look at it, I don't remember the words exactly. And there were people in Twitter sphere who quickly changed those headlines and rewrote them so that the person who was responsible was clearly the shooter and the person who was the victim was clearly the girl that was killed. Of course. And so that's something that I think is a problem because when you read those he- kinds of headlines, are you aware that that's what's being said and that's right. the message that's being given or so, is it so unconscious you don't even notice? Again, I, I think it's something that I wouldn't I, I wouldn't even pay attention to unless, to be honest, unless other people point it out. So for me, it's something that is eye-opening and I'm, I'm being more vigilant as I go along and read articles. For me personally, I the way I consume my media is I'm trying to be critical now of everything that I that I uh, read. It's just it's just really difficult for the average person I think to to listen to something and just and try to get what what the honest intention behind that article is. But you have to really be responsible on how you report these things. It's not. It's not fair to the victim. That actually shows up a lot because, you know, I follow this in the news, obviously. And I'm always, when I read about mass shootings, I'm always looking for that domestic violence history or misogynistic history. But I also read a lot about, just through my network Uh of DV advocates and survivors, I also come across lots and lots of articles around murder-suicides, which are a subset of mass shootings. And the murder-suicides, they, most of the time, they're not impacting anybody outside of the immediate family, but sometimes they do. So sometimes, you know, like their neighbors or friends or current spouses or partners Mm -hmm. or even the non-biological children, you know, of their former partners that are hurt. And those articles happen all the time. And there's always, I think more so than not, like I would say, you know, just anecdotally 80 to 90% of them, there's always some reference to number one, not knowing what the motive is, as if you need to know, because if there was a domestic violence history, if there was an order of protection, if there was an effort by the woman to try to leave because they were, she was, you know, filing for divorce recently. Right. Then that itself, if you work with domestic violence victims and survivors, you know that leaving is oftentimes a big trigger for even greater violence. Absolutely. And and so it just seems odd to me that people would even ask that question. And then there's also some reference to, you know, again, making the shooter the victim right. by saying, Oh, well, you know, the divorce or the trauma of the divorce or the custody, quote unquote, battle, led you to, know, led to the, the, the murder suicide. And there's no justification. Absolutely and, and the custody battle is just a symptom of the abuser's desire to exert power and control because someone is the partner is trying to leave him. Right. 
And he's saying, no, it's not okay. Right. And it's when someone exercises independence and autonomy that they get punished and retaliated against. In these cases, through death. Right. You know, and so to me, those kinds of um, articles, I wish there was more training. I wish there was more self-analysis by these journalists who report on them and just learn about trauma, learn about domestic violence and coercive control, learn about the patterns so that they could be more responsible when they're writing about it, because these are often you know, the first point of contact that the public has about domestic violence. Right. And to have those words be used in such an irresponsible way really has a long lasting impact. Right. I mean, I'm sure many people read the article and this is the first thing, the first and the last that they hear about this story and then they move on. And so it's very irresponsible that they are going to, um, we have this as the only interaction. And like that particular article if you compare the two titles compared to the original title, it's much more serious. If you if you say, well, the shooter kills victim that he constantly was harassing. Yes. That brings up more attention. It, it puts the blame on the person who's responsible. Yeah. So. And you're holding, we're reinforcing a culture of accountability. Absolutely. Rather than what happened with, you know, Brock Turner, the, the right. Stanford rape case, right. you know, where it's just like white male upper middle class, he's the victim because among some groups, because his education and his name and his reputation has been ruined. But now, really it hasn't been because he has access to social capital oh, and absolutely. he's going to get a job no matter what. Oh, definitely. But I think even in the now climate, I think things are hopefully changing a little bit. I, I don't know if you saw the article where the judge in that case is being held accountable. So I think- that's a little ray of hope. Yeah. Right? So just in um, this week's primaries, basically right. you're saying in California, Aaron, yeah, right. um, Aaron Persky has now been voted out right. as a judge. So that's a big victory for the Me Too movement, for Absolutely. you know advocates who are against violence against women. But but on the other hand, I think from a legal perspective, there are a lot of legal scholars who are concerned about the present it'll set. And whether or not on the flip side, you know, it'll create a situation where people don't like a particular judicial response or decision, and it's going to create vulnerability to these judges in their positions. Because, you know, it could be the case that if conservatives come into power, they don't like the fact that, you know, liberals want to, you know, put forth, let's say, same-sex marriage in a particular, you know, jurisdiction, right. and they want to vote out those judges, or they want to vote out judges who are soft on marijuana crimes, you know, whatever it is, right? And so that that's what the legal scholars are worried about. Right. Uh, which is different from, you know, the cultural response that we've been getting, which is positive. Right, right. And I, I think it's that cultural response that I'm focusing on that saying that, yes, the people are seeing this and, and they're speaking up. At least in the cultural responses, it, it's a good thing. I hope that, that that trend continues. I mean, I'm happy for the Me Too movement and how it, it's being held. A lot of people are being held accountable for their actions. So it's it's it, I think it, that is a positive thing. But yes, we're always going to continue to have these so, other issues. So since you're since we're on the Me Too movement and yes. you brought this up earlier, let's loop back to okay. Michelle Carroll. So you <laughs> you wanted to talk about the whole Aziz Ansari. So when we were speaking with Michelle Carroll, who's director of campus projects at the New York State Coalition Against Sexual Assault, Michelle and I talked about a lot of things. We talked about the education law in New York State 
governing um, campus rape and sexual assault. And we also touched upon some critical recent cultural moments, uh, one of which was Aziz Ansari. So what were your thoughts about that, Michael? So before I listened to this podcast, I did read the original article that the she- article, The yeah, yeah, the, the, the person that went on a date with him. Right, right. And when I read it, well, by the way, uh, before I, I just heard about it and I thought it was like, wait, so I, I just wanted to see what her point of view was. And I got this knot in my stomach. I'm like- Wow, that that did make me feel uncomfortable, but I really couldn't pinpoint of why it made me feel uncomfortable because at the time I thought, well, he didn't force her to stay. He didn't say, oh, you can't leave. I don't want to get too into detail, but if she performed an act that I thought, well, if she did that, then I mean, he didn't have a gun to her head. I really couldn't understand that at that moment why I felt uncomfortable when she told the story, I felt, yeah, she she was wronged. Now, I, I read other articles saying, well, you know, she could have gotten out. She could have she could have at any moment said, oh, I'm leaving. So, you know, and and one of the things that people were doing were defending Aziz Ansari saying, oh, well, now now his personal tactics for hitting on women is now being attacked. Uh, of course, he's not the most successful and it was awkward and now it's being put in, into public. So he was now the victim. And it was really hard for me to argue or understand why is it that I felt bad for her when I read the article. But at the same time, I was like, but yeah, maybe he's right. So I was really confused. They, and it was really hard for me to pinpoint why I, I, why I felt that way until this um, episode, this with, episode Michelle? with Michelle. Oh, yeah. so what was it about what Michelle said that? Shifted. Well, she really explained the Aziz and Zari thing and said how it was coercive control, that he had power over her. It was difficult for her to say no in a situation where she didn't have power. She, It was coercion. And she explained it how in the universities, people are being educated on coercive control and how important that is. So that made, gave me sort of the language to say, this is why this was wrong. This is why I... I understand her or, or that I got that uncomfortable feeling for her when she when she said what she said in the article. Right. So it basically had me understand why the blame was on Aziz in this case. Yeah. And I think also what she said probably helped a lot of the listeners really solidify it, you know, as well, is that when this young woman who went on the date with Aziz referenced what she thought she might feel the next day after spending time with him, being intimate, you know, and that she would feel bad about herself, right? Right. That that would be enough. It's like a indirect way of saying, I'm not going to feel good about myself. Right. And why would you want to be engaging in something that you know is going to make someone feel bad wouldn't you just as a person want to inquire what that is and create a space where you can have a conversation about it so you can understand because you wouldn't want to be responsible for being partly making them feel bad, feel bad right? Course, and yeah. so that to me, just like from a human level, I think also hopefully help some of our listeners really get it. Right. So, and that was the other thing that I was, I was also, when now that you brought that up, there's a lot of excuses saying, well, he didn't know that she was uncomfortable. He didn't know because she didn't verbalize it. She wasn't explicit, but she she was. I feel that 
the way she explained it, I did believe her. The other thing that I thought was was interesting in that interview was how we have a different standard overall in society in that situation than we do in colleges. So that was pretty shocking too. And and I thought, you know, this probably would have been put into context and people would have had the appropriate response if they were as educated as as as, right. as so you're referencing the fact that the the New York State law has a higher level of accountability for what affirmative consent is Correct. in yeah. relationships. And that in the general population, we don't have any kind of law to protect us right. from not having affirmative consent. Which, right. by the way, have you ever seen the tea video? The tea video? So there's an there's a animation that I think it was a year and a half ago came out on the internet and it was shared very widely, mainly amongst parents, Mm -hmm. people with kids who um, wanted to teach consent using the stick figures with tea. Do you remember that? Um, Yeah, where if you want tea and the person says no. Or if they're sleeping, you're not going to give them tea, right? right? So it was the same. So I thought that was perfect. Like, if you get, if you wouldn't give someone tea when they're sleeping, why would you you know force you know these kinds of sexual acts when they're you know? So it's the same thing, and right. so I think if you apply it to the Aziz Ansari case, it's perfect because she didn't want tea, and he and there was he, yeah he was trying to convince her to have some yeah. Um, but but I think what also what really struck me about that case when it first came out is just as a woman of color. You know, I'm a huge fan of Aziz. Right. I love his show, Master of None, on Netflix. Right. You know, I, I I love the fact that he gives a voice to these stories right. that we don't see in mainstream television a lot. Right. And he's kind of a hero of mine, you right. know, because there aren't that many of us. I know. You know, I right? Know. On mainstream TV Absolutely. and in the media. So there's a weight that he carries. Absolutely. Because of his position as a man of color with power in mainstream media mm-hmm. that he just didn't hold responsibly because my first thought was, oh, oh no, so you know, painful. now, now like he's going to be disempowered in his position. I mean, I hope not. I hope he's learned from it and, you know, he's right. it's changed he- him to maybe do things differently. But, but I think, right. you know, for those of us, I mean, I, that's a similar to what people th- thought about, I'm sure, with, you know, Bill Cosby and all the other of course, you know, a- men of anybody. color. You're always thinking about, oh, no, there are not, aren't enough of us. And that's your reaction. Right. You, But that doesn't mean that you should be defensive of their behavior. No, absolutely not. You do have way. to hold them responsible for it. It's just a sad it, it kind is. of think, uh, I don't think he hasn't uh, come out with anything new or been in public after that. So, yeah, a lot of people that I've, I've admired and respected, like, before this, and you might disagree, but I, I did appreciate You're Louis, say Louis C.K. Louis C.K. Right? I yeah. told you okay, this before, yeah. right? <laughs> the Louis C.K. and 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 I look at him differently, even when I look at his comedy. I do appreciate the techniques that he uses to be funny and everything, but then I see some of the things, and I yeah, and I get this knot in my stomach. That, yeah, yeah, yeah. So absolutely. I so one so just. Before we move on, I just want to say one final thing about the whole Aziz Ansari. Yeah. I also read articles when that came out, which I thought was very good too, was referencing how in so many ways that example of what happened on that date is so common amongst 
relationships, I, you know, I'm going right. to just speak for heterosexual relationships, that there's this expectation for men to pursue women aggressively and win and see it as like a reward that they're able to convince the woman, you know, to change their mind. And, and it's like conquering something that they have to conquer. And so to sum it up, it's so common amongst heterosexual relationships, that kind of mentality and those sets of behaviors that accompany that mentality that we're all kind of immune and blind to it. Right. And so the fact that it's come out now in this way at this moment, I think is really powerful and hopefully will change the dialogue. I, I, I agree. See, I mean, when we, we consume media and I saw something uh, not too long ago talking about how nerd culture is supposedly, it's supposed to be like this inoffensive, the inoffensive person. There's like this trope where you're talking about the the nerd who he he can't get the woman, so he's portrayed as weak, but that's supposed to somehow excuse some of his behavior. I saw So he's some, not a threat, in other So words. he's not a threat. So this has been really popularized in, in things like Big Bang Theory. Yeah. I forget who, but on the internet they they, they really explain exactly. But, but why. in fact it's not the case because so much of like what happened in Toronto with the shooter, you know, he was part of what's called, I'll put, I'll say this in quotes, incel culture, right? So incel, I put that in quotes. It it stands for involuntary celibacy for people who don't know. Um, And I, the reason I put that in quotes is because there's some feminists who, who believe that we shouldn't be um, legitimizing that term, we should just be calling it for what it is, which is misogyny, Absolutely. right? Or terroristic misogyny. Mm-hmm. And that somehow, it, you know, creating a term for involuntary celibacy legitimizes their position as victims of not being able to engage in sex, you know, when they want, with whom they want, et cetera. Right. You know, and and so, no, we're not going to, you know, we're going to say they're a misogynist, but you're right that those group of people that they were able, that that particular shooter was from right. is this online group where they're all kind of promoting coalescing this. around their quote unquote victimhood. Right, right. You know, they're a perceived they're victim, yes. victor, victimhood. Right. That's what it is. Ultimately perceived victimhood. And we see it in the media all the time. I think, um... There's a couple of movies I can't really think off the top of my head, uh, but where the college nerds somehow their behavior is, is excused just because they feel like victims. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the last episode that has been released is is this one debut with the survivor named Elizabeth, mm-hmm. um, part of our Survivor Stories series. And we structured it so that she was really able to have the freedom to to really, I guess in some ways chronologically, account for her emotional trajectory during that relationship and how how she became more and more aware of what was happening in her relationship, how she was responding, how it was unhealthy for her and impacting her, and then ultimately what led her to leave the relationship. And of course that that conversation left out a lot of parts that, you know, we didn't get into as to the things that she didn't feel comfortable sharing. But trust me when there's a lot more, but I'm just curious, like when you heard that story, 
Is that something that was new to you to hear that? You know, so how was, did it impact you? So this was a change of pace, right? Because the other episodes were really informative in terms of this one was also informative, but I think in a different way. I love the way she told the story because she brought us at the very beginning to a place where, yeah, what what he did wasn't so bad. It wasn't so 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 alarming. It's things that we may have done and we we don't think it has that much of a that, that much of an impact on a person like uh, being critical of, of someone I've experienced someone being critical of me and at that time I didn't think hey you know it's it's not not a big deal in fact I thought in some cases that it changed me in a positive way because I thought hey you know what that certain thing about me I have to change and it'll make me a better person so at first you know she in the beginning of her relationship she really didn't think it was that big of a deal it's just like oh look those shoes you know you get you should wear other shoes or 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 I don't like the color of that dress things that seem pretty common so then she went later on into the the pattern that that was created, the fact that this man wanted to have control of every aspect of her life, her social interactions. And one of the uh, episodes earlier talked about, basically there's, there's points where the man was jealous of her or was yeah. did not want to see her succeed. Right, her ex-husband. And, so her ex-husband did not want to see her succeed and 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 did things to sort of minimize her and put her down and that somehow made him feel better, but regardless she's the one who's who has to deal with this these attacks on her and as the episode moved forward we we really got to know how she felt and she conveyed it in a very emotional and passionate way that 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 I really did feel for her. It's it it's it's it, it it's a devastating thing that happened to her. And what's even sadder, I think, is it wasn't really a happy ending. It wasn't like, oh well, now I got out of that relationship and things are better, and now I'm X Y Z. No, he he ultimately sort of won. I think he ended up with taking everything from her. So she, yeah. I mean, well, I I don't think that she would characterize him as quote-unquote winning right only because she made it clear that you know she's still standing and she's sort of surviving and she's still being she's still able to find joy in her life right and I think that the key is that he tried to take away that joy from her permanently Mm -hmm. the ability to even feel joy and and he wasn't able to do so, even though he may have taken a lot of other things away. Right. Um, right. I was referring to the physical yeah, things, the financial. Yeah. And and I think you're you bring up a good point because when Michelle Carroll and I were talking during the episode, you know, on campus rape and sexual assault, I brought up how I had seen the City University of New York as part of their annual campus climate student survey sexual assault survey had at the end of their survey statistics around how intimate partner violence impacted students in their ability to turn in their homework on time, their ability to go to class on time and to take an exam and to go to school and to re-enroll. And the cost is, yeah, and is so not there's, just money. There's very, very clear connections between someone in a in an abusive, coercive relationship where 
when they try to seek autonomy and freedom and, and better themselves, it's going to be quashed by the abuser. Right. And it often happens when they try to get a job, when they try to, you know, go to school. And for Elizabeth, she had to hide that. Like when she was president, right, right of yeah. her, you know, organization, right. she didn't even want to let her husband know. Right. And because, then and when he, he did angry. find out, yeah, when he did find out, he got angry. Now, Elizabeth is, I, I think, fortunate in the way that she was, she's an educated woman and Elizabeth has has some sort of autonomy, I would say, in comparison to another woman who may financially not be in that position where she may have less education. So I... I'm well, I mean, you're, you're attributing, you're equating autonomy in that respect then to... Financially? Well, to the ability to have financial security, right. I guess, right? Right. But even if one doesn't have financial security, I think there's always some level of autonomy that we can assert in just recognizing the situation that we're in. Right. And being able to see clearly. Right. Because very often when we start seeing things clearly for what they are, that's when we can make the decision that we don't want that anymore for ourselves right. and create the safety plan to eventually leave if that is what we choose. Right. But because for some people in certain cultures, certain you know religions, it might be too much of a cost to bear because they'll be ostracized or you know their kids will be taken away. Absolutely. But for others, I think the starting point is the freedom to see things as they are, so that they could make a decision. Right. They want something plan. better. Right. I would say that you, we all have that autonomy. Right. When it comes to being in an abusive relationship, one of the most important things is finding that support. And the more people are informed, the easier that support can come to a lot of survivors. I think. And, and what, what do you mean by informed in that? Informed about what coercive control is, what what kind of tactics these abusers use in order to maintain their control. I think I think if, if her friends and family were more informed, she may either have gone out of there sooner or been able to recognize. Now, she had a child and that's that's something that may, you know, she could teach her child so her daughter or son can be helpful in future situations. But if not specifically talking about this case, if we were talking about somebody else, if the society in general was more informed, then she could maybe, a victim could possibly go to someone else and get that support. She talked about support in this episode. She was talking about how she would want somebody just to listen to her. And that was very helpful. So that was a powerful part of this interview because it lets us hear from the point of view of the victim and what it is that she would have needed during that time. Now, I've heard of other people who are in this situation who may not necessarily have had that sort of support. For some people, it's not always easy to listen to something so devastating, something so hard. I, I do think that it is taxing, and she brought this up. It's okay for somebody who who's listening to say, hey, listen, let's not talk about this now. Let's let's let, let's uh, let's bring this up at a later time, but always be there to support that person regardless, but making sure that the person is okay with that themselves. Yeah. So I think that's right. I think so much of when people hear these things, when people, you know, in crisis come to them in their lives, they're listening to try to fix 
right. and they become overwhelmed by their inability to find a solution right. when really all they need to do is listen to listen. Right. Right. And right. so maybe that's a good place for us to end our conversation is if you can take anything away from these six episodes that we've published so far is let's all be better listeners Absolutely. And be more critical of ourselves and our own behaviors when we catch ourselves not doing that as right. well. Yeah, this is uh, an ongoing conversation and we'll always hopefully uh, be improving to become better people and better supports for our loved ones. Well, thank you so much, Michael, for being on the show today. Well, thank and you for inviting looking me. Looking forward to talking about the next set of episodes. Absolutely. Soon. I'm excited to see what's going to happen next time. All right. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Engendered. The show is sponsored by Can Do It. The mission of Can Do It is to connect human service providers with the resources they need to empower their clients to be safe, healthy, housed, educated, employed, advised, and secure. CanDoIt helps to bridge the service gap and can be found at kanduit.com. CanDoIt. I'd love to get your feedback and hear any questions or suggestions you may have for the show. Please email us at engenderedpodcast at gmail.com with your questions. Until next time, I'm your host, Terry Yuan. Thank you.